असतो मद्गमय तमसो मोतिर्गमय मृत्युर्मात गमय ओ शीडस फ्रॉम दि अनियल टू द रियल leaders from darkness unto light leaders from death to immortality om peace 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 darkness unto light it normally works but light's not coming on now <laughs> yes So the question where does the spiritual quest come from if it comes from the mind wouldn't it be a conflict of interest because then the mind is is striving for its own if not termination at least surpassing first of all when you are when you hear terms like destruction of the mind uh, going beyond the mind it does not mean that um, see for example going beyond the mind does not mean you become mindless or you take leave of your senses or your mind no you realize that your real nature is beyond the mind when you hear a phrase like destruction of the mind it does not literally mean that your brain damaged or something like that it means the mind as an independent entity ceases to be you realize it is nothing other than consciousness brahman with the name and form called mind body world universe there nothing other than brahman in this sense alone the universe or the body or the mind are destroyed otherwise they persist it's like saying realizing that this table is nothing other than wood every bit of it is the wood is the destruction of the table destruction of table does not mean smashing the table into bits you realize that there is no separate entity independent entity called a table apart from the constituent material so that's one point but the deeper question is where does the spiritual quest come from there's a practical answer to this a practical answer is it comes it comes from suffering suffering because we suffer in life and there are physical suffering there is relationship there is mental suffering ultimately all suffering is mental ultimately to feel suffering it must come to the mind so mental suffering and there is existential suffering if everything is going well in these countries for example advanced countries of western europe or australia new zealand or canada canada usa japan singapore in these advanced countries uh, where material wants are more or less taken care of if you have a nice society and your generally things are comfortable there's still existential a called existential angst general sense of unhappiness all our material needs are taken care of practically speaking whatever we could have wanted but then uh, what is the point of it all i'm going to die one day and it's going to be over was this all what is the what happened then why this daily grind this daily struggle is who wrote this 
most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. Was it death of a salesman or something? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Isn't there anything beyond this? So in, in Hinduism, we speak about four goals of, uh, of humanity. Human beings, we have four goals. One is um, pleasure, karma. One is artha. Artha literally means money, but it also means success, power, achievement, all of that. And then there is dharma. Dharma means um, morals and ethics and goodness and decency, a higher life, a moral, ethical life, purposeful life. Beyond that, see, even after artha, kama and dharma, in India we say dharma, artha, kama. First dharma and on the basis of that, the pursuit of pleasure and success. Even after all of that, one still asks the question, is that all? So from that the spiritual quest comes. That uh, what is beyond this? Otherwise it is not satisfactory, it is not enough. So that is one. The Buddha's quest was, he saw suffering. There is old age and disease and death. In the Bhagavad Gita is also there, 13th chapter. The qualifications for jnana, for knowledge. One of the qualifications is, Janma mrityu jara dukkham, Janma mrityu jara vyadhi, Dukkha doshanu darshanam. See the sorrow inherent in birth and death, old, old age and illness. Janma mrityu jara vyadhi, Janma birth, mrityu death. Jara is old age and Vyadhi is illness, physical, mental illness. The sorrow inherent in that. And the Buddha saw that. He saw a sick person, an old person and a dead person. And this is a universal sorrow. Isn't there any escape, anything beyond sorrow? How can we transcend sorrow? So that was his quest. The Four Noble Truths, I remember we had to memorize it in school, social science courses. And the, what are the four noble truths of the Buddha? It would carry two marks on one one. <laughs> there is suffering, dukkha, the first noble truth. Then the noble in the sense of great, profound truth. There is suffering. Then the second one, there is a cause of suffering. Desire, trishna. There is an end to suffering. Nirvana, freedom from suffering. And there is a way, a technique, an approach to do that. Ashtanga Marga, the eightfold way. Not the eightfold yoga which we talked about, the eightfold way. So that is Buddha's. So suffering is the cause, from there spiritual quest comes. But there is a deeper reason, even beyond suffering. It comes from our real nature. You are Sat Chit Ananda, uh, infinite being infinite bliss, infinite awareness. And being in this immortal being, I, I find myself in the midst of change and birth and death. So I, I yearn to go back. I don't know it, but I yearn to go back to that state. There is something within me which calls out to that state. Being infinite awareness, I find myself in limited, knowing such a little and there's a vast unknown. This desire to know more and more and more. 
It comes from our real nature as chit, pure consciousness. Being pure bliss ourselves, we find ourselves trapped in this most unsatisfactory situation, dukkha, suffering. And we yearn to go back to our real nature, which is bliss. Sat, chit, ananda. We are searching for ourselves. That's why the spiritual quest is there. You will not stop on this side of infinity. Somebody asked me, why do you want to give up everything and become a monk? Before I became a monk, a friend asked me. I said, that, uh, he said, don't you want any of this? I said, it's not that I don't want any of this. It's that I want all of it. It's not that my wants are limited. My wants are infinite. I want everything. That's why I want to become a monk. It may sound paradoxical. That story of uh, Alan Watts, spiritual quest, where does it come from? He said, God alone existed. It's a children's story, but, uh, but it makes tremendous sense. Beautiful. And sometimes children get it much faster than grown-up people. We are complicated. Alan Watts, he, he made up the story. He said, God alone existed from eternity to eternity, but eternal existence can be pretty boring. So after some time, he got bored. He wanted to play. But whom would he play with? Because God alone existed. There's nobody else to play with. And so God thought, and thought, and thought. And because he was God, he is very awfully clever, he came up with a plan. So God pretended to be not God. So God, and God pretending to be not God, now he has got somebody to play with. God pretending to be not God. But the problem arose. What is the problem? Because it is God, he is awfully good at what he does. So when he pretended to be not God, he did such a good job of it, he totally forgot that he was God. And now there is God pretending to be not God, searching for God. <laughs> that is the spiritual quest. That explains life and that explains the spiritual quest. Yes. It's a subject. Chit Shakti. Chit, chit is consciousness. Yes, it's a subject. It is you yourself. Yeah. How would your answer change today to the person who asked you, why do you want to give it all up? Oh, it's, it's the same answer. Yeah. Absolutely. I un understand the philosophical un underpinning. I don't know what pr prompted me to give such a profound answer at that time. It's, I'd read Vedanta, but I didn't make it up. Now, now I know the meaning, underlying meaning of that. It is true. None of us, all of us want everything. We will not stop on this side of the finite, of the infinite. None of us will stop. You do it, this search, um, Aurobindo said, if you do it consciously, you're called a spiritual seeker. Do it unconsciously, you're just living your life. That's what life is. Life itself is a spiritual quest. In Aurobindo's language, life itself is yoga. We just don't know it. Yes. Yes. Of course. There are such people. You're asking, are there such people? Yeah. Of course there are such people. If you read the lives of the... There are so many devotees throughout the history of 
um, humanity in every civilization who were enlightened people living in samsara where what kind of a monk was krishna or arjuna they were in samsara both were householders wasn't it whether the, the famous case of raja janaka householder and the holy mother herself she showed a perfect life possible within samsara how to live a jivan mukta's life within samsara as a demonstration to the rest of us sometimes i think if you compare the three of them she had the most difficult job of it all she had to lead live a life like the rest of us how many of us can be like ramakrishna lost in the ecstasy of of uh, the bliss of god living in a temple garden having visions and the only work was teaching spirituality that's it if he was asked to do what a holy mother did from the morning cooking and cleaning and taking care of uh, um, of an insane relative and greedy brothers and people with importunities their worldly problems and everything he would immediately go into samadhi you know <laughs> he wouldn't have any part of it and vivekananda the work given to him by ramakrishna was to spread spirituality even that he want didn't want to do even that he did not want to do he said he wanted to and he tried it a number of times he he ran away to the himalayas i've seen one of the caves where he meditated um near almora shyaldevi or something what what is the name of the place it is uh, it's even now it's almost inaccessible very difficult to climb to there's no road up to it you have to climb it even the climb is very difficult he went there and he meditated and he wrote, he says later on as if i was physically ejected from those caves <laughs> that sri ramakrishna said you are very he said i will not do this work sri ramakrishna said your very bones will make you do it <laughs> vivekananda later said he made me over to kali so kali i'm firmly convinced that kali worked up that body sri ramakrishna's body for her own own ends he made me over to kali for we are glad he did that's why we are sitting here today uh, why yoga and vedanta all of this came to the west all of that was because of vivekananda it came through vivekananda he was the one who opened the door but what i'm saying is if he was asked to do what the holy mother did no 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 traveling around in the himalayas or going to chicago to the world parliament religions and giving talks and teaching vedanta none of that going to cook and clean and and uh, deal with greedy relatives and trouble some people and that's what you're going to do all your life he would have straight away run away to the himalayas not for me <laughs> and the holy mother did it for years and decades and decades after sri ramakrishna passed away after vivekananda passed away she demonstrated how it can be done in samsara if you look at the lives of the householder disciples of sri ramakrishna m master masha we shall read the gospel later on in the evening after dinner so all of them yes i'll do a little bit of that i planned it in the evening today after uh, when we do the gospel reading that's some more unstructured more relaxed approach but now yes last one before we go back to the to brahman yes so i had a question about uh, the nirvakalpa samadhi but do remind me in the evening uh, yeah yes nirvakalpa samadhi um, so earlier you mentioned that you know you lose track of or like 
Yes, not experienced, yes. Yes, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, that is the culmination of yoga. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha, the eight-limbed yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, culminates in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Another name is Asampragyanta Samadhi, where the distinction between meditator and the, and the object of meditation and the process of meditation, it is erased. So awareness alone is there without the feeling that I am meditating on something. There is no subject-object. It is like deep sleep, but it's actually just the polar opposite of deep sleep. In deep sleep, there's no subject and object. You don't feel that I'm sleeping. But the whole thing is covered by darkness. Here, the whole thing is lit up. And yet, there is no um, a person meditating on something that is not there. And it's a state of the mind. The mind is also active there, but not as subject-object. It's still alive there. Now, if um, old samskaras are there in the mind, they become active after some time, and a vritti will come up, and slowly that person comes back. There are different stages of nirvikalpa samadhi, different um, uh, varieties, stages, I would say. There is a description of sapta bhumi, seven, um, bhumi means land, or seven lands, or seven stages of absorption into the infinite. The first one is what you can achieve here itself, a breakthrough, an insight. Yes, it's there. That's the first one. But you are aware of this. You can remain absorbed in it, you can come out at, at your will also. The second one is, it becomes absorbed in it in meditation and um, does not come out unless somebody prompts him. So Sri Ramakrishna, he would give mantras to people or tell them, take this name when you see me in deep meditation and, and uh, sometimes he would go into such deep meditation other people around would get scared. So you, you chant the name of God or this particular deity or something like that in my ears and would come back. There was a monk who used to feed Sri Ramakrishna, would beat him with a stick and force food into his mouth in the, in the early stages when after Totapuri left, he remained in Nirvikalpa Samadhi on and off for six months. So somebody would feed him. He said the hair grew matted and birds <laughs> and all of that. So, And the third one, last one is where nobody can bring him back anymore. There the body lasts for 21 days. Ramakrishna mentions it. This is in the Saptabhumi, the seventh stage. It is called Turiyaga, the one merged in Turiya. For that, no, that person will not come back anymore. Means merged in Brahman, is Brahman, no longer to come uh, manifest again as a, as a physical, as a person. All right. Vivekananda, yes, yes. Fourth of July, 1902, when he passed away. He used to say, I will not live to see 40. And he selected, because he loved the United States, the idea of liberty. He selected the 4th of July, Day of Independence, for, for freedom. <laughs> and he passed away in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He had the capacity of leaving the body at will in, in meditation. Now let's see. And then we have we have seen yama and niyama. 
And the third one is Tyagaha, renunciation. Very good. You were just asking about a monk. So here is renunciation. Renunciation. In my book, it is verse 106. Tyaga prapancha rupasya chedatmatvavalokanat tyago hi mahatam pujyaha sadyo moksha mayoyataha. What is tyaga in renunciation? Renunciation of the world. How is it done? By realizing it is none other than Brahman. I, the consciousness, this world is nothing other than me. And this Tyaga, Mahatampujya, it is highly respected by the wise, by the holy, because Sadyo Moksha Mayo Yataha. It gives moksha, liberation, freedom, right now, Sadya, straight away. So, what is meant here? Two, two meanings again. The yogic Tyaga, which, by which he means sannyasi, monk, a person who gives up worldliness. The monk may be in a robe like this, or monk may be internally. Internally, one has to become a monk in spiritual life. One has to become a monk internally in spiritual life. Whether you are in the householder life, see, why people keep thinking that in the householder life one cannot become spiritual? If worldly goals are your goals, then what will you get? You'll get the world. If your goal is God, what will you get? You'll get God. I remember this um, monk He's a wandering monk. He, he's talking to a, a visitor, a person who is asking questions. He says, I have no interest in what you know or what you do. But what is your internal aspiration? Tell me that. See, in Hindi, the words are, Tum kya jante ho, kya karte ho, usse mujhe dilchaspi nahi hai. I have no interest in what you know or what you do. Bhav kya hai batao. What is your internal um, bhav is a attitude, aspiration, disposition? Yes. What, what really, which way do you tend internally, honestly, inside? I'm interested in that. So that monk told us that in human beings there are three streams. Teen dhara, three streams. What are these three streams? Gyan dhara, the, the stream of knowledge. Karma dhara, the stream of action, what you do. Bhavadhara, your internal disposition. Which way are you tending in your life? And he said, spirituality depends on the third one. It really does not depend on exactly what you do for a living or what you know, what degrees you have got, what books you have read. It really doesn't depend on that. It depends on what you want from inside. So he gave us examples. Um, one example is um, of uh, a person who is... A priest in a temple. Now a priest in a temple, doing puja and everything. So the person definitely knows Sanskrit, has read holy books. And what, what are the actions that he's doing? Holy actions, puja, worship, rituals, all day long and all life long. So he's a priest. So what does he know? He knows religious books. What does he do? He does religious work. But suppose he's sitting in the temple and doing arati and puja and he's looking back how many devotees have come and how much money have they put today and with that money I'll put a new roof on my house and my send my son to the... These are his words, the, the monk. Send my son to the English medium school. Uh, if he's thinking that, he's thinking of samsara. So he says bhava, internal bhava is towards samsara. What will he get? Oh, samsara ko hi prapt hoga, which means he will get samsara. He'll get the world. He wants that. Though all his activities are religious. Uh, 
And then he gave an example of a simple person who may not know Sanskrit and who may not be doing anything particularly spiritual or holy, but wants God. And that person will get God. But he gave an example, but I know of a real-life example. Um, there's one Swami, because you told Nirvikalpa Samadhi, it reminded me, his name is Nirvikalpananda. <laughs> so he told us this story. When he was a Brahmachari, he's a very senior Swami now. When he was a young Brahmachari, as a novice, he joined in Jairambati, which is the Holy Mother's birthplace. There's an ashram there and temple there. And he said, when we were Brahmacharis, we used to see this very old man, he would come and sweep outside the temple. That was his job. He was a sweeper. So he would come and sweep and clean outside the temple. And then he would go back home. And we have seen that he had, everybody, even the senior monk said he had been coming forever. He'd been doing that every day they would see him coming and sweeping. One day he was really old and un unable, his obviously in difficulty. And the head monk of that ashram went to him and said, um, old father, you need not come anymore. We will send you your wages. You stay at home. He was in the village. He used to live in the village. You don't have to come here. We'll send you what, you, what, you, what is owed to you. And that old man said, Swami, you don't know. To him, all these Swamis are like children because they have come, uh, they were born long before, um, I mean, long after his, uh, you know, when he became old and all. So he says that, Swami, you don't know why I do this. I don't do it for the money. Listen, when I was a little boy, I used to come with my father and who is to sweep this place and I would do the same thing and watch my father do it. And I would see this lady there she would be sitting. There was no temple there. This is the house of, of uh, the Holy Mother. And I would see so many big people come to her from Calcutta. I would see monks come to her. They would bow down to her. Many of them would get spiritual ecstasies. And they would all get initiated by her. So I thought, maybe won't I? I was shy, you know. I never dared to approach her. But won't I get anything? So one day, he said, he was a little boy. He approached the Holy Mother when she was sitting alone and said, Mother, won't I get anything? And the Holy Mother said, Why, my child, you'll get everything. Keep on doing what you're doing. You'll get everything. That's all she said. That's our only instruction. And he said, because of that, all this last you know, 70, 80 years, I have been doing it. Just coming and sweeping in front of. The house has changed into a temple now. Um, millions of people from the world come here now. But I just come and do that. They have not seen her. They have come, they have come for the temple. For me, she's still sitting there and she, those words are very clear to me. My child, keep on doing what you are doing. You will get everything. And I do it. And that's why I do it. And so he continued. Till one day he really couldn't come anymore. One day his daughter came and start, started sweeping the place. So the monk said, what happened to your father? Oh, he can't get up from bed. I think he's very ill. So the monks went to see him. And remember, one of those monks told me, Nirvikalpananda. And then he said, um, he was dying. And the monks went to see him, and they said that before he passed away, he actually had a vision of the Holy Mother. Hmm. He said, the mother, you have not forgotten me. Yeah. So That is bhava. That is being a monk in internally. See, the, his whole thing was, I want God-realization. So whether you are wearing this dress or not, that internal orientation must be there. That is tyaga. That is the meaning of tyaga.
Now, what Shankaracharya does is, he says, there is no need to, the, the point is not to give up the world and wear a dress like this and cut away your relationships with, uh, with your parents and your relatives and throw away your job and stay in a cave in the mountains. No, no, no. He says, what is real renunciation? Prapancha rupasya chidatmatva By seeing that this entire universe is nothing other than I, the consciousness. This one consciousness alone appears as everything. This is the renunciation of the universe. And this renunciation, you can easily see why it leads immediately to moksha. Because you are seeing Brahman inside, outside. That is moksha. The, the, that undying reality. Names and forms keep changing. Birth and death goes on at the level of maya. But you, re, you realize inside and outside. You are seeing God everywhere. That is moksha. That is real renunciation. In the Isha Upanishad, the first line, Ishavasyam idam sarvam yatkincha jagatyam jagat tena tyaktena bhunjitha magridha kasya svidhanam. The first line is very famous. What does it mean? Whatever there is in this world, whomever you encounter, whatever you encounter, whatever happens, literally it means, cover it all with God. Isha, by God. Vasyam. Vasyam means cover. Acharanyam. Cover everything with God. Cover everything with God means what? Shankaracharya in his commentary says, cover means to uncover. <laughs> cover means to uncover. God is right here. How do you uncover? He says it means discover. <laughs> Inside and outside, God is right here. What we are trying to do since yesterday, what we are trying to discover within ourselves, that one reality, that alone appears as you and this entire universe. See, in Advaita, we have these two movements. First is neti neti, and we realize I am not the body, mind, I am that consciousness we saw. But there is another movement, now outwards. Now the question, once in a while now you see the question started coming. What about my neighbor's consciousness? Uh, is it different from mine? Now what are you asking? I'm getting an idea about what you're talking about, but hey, wait a minute, what about them? Are they different consciousnesses? Are they one? And the answer was, it is one consciousness. Next question also should be, what about all this? Tables and chairs and microphone and lights and houses and um, hills and trees and sky and clouds and planets and stars and atoms and quarks, what about them? The answer is, they are also nothing but that consciousness. How? Beyond the scope. Another, another retreat is necessary. Yeah. But actually it can be experienced. Actually it can be experienced. There's one consciousness appearing as many. Krishna says in the Gita, avibhaktam cha bhuteshu vibhaktam chasthitam. I am one and undivided in all beings, appearing to be divided. So that one consciousness inside and outside, that is Brahman. Recognizing that, then the Ishopanishad says, next line is very interesting. Everyone quotes the first one. People generally don't notice the next one. Next one it says, This is renunciation. Realizing everything, discovering God in everything, by that renunciation, enjoy life or protect that knowledge. 
Stabilize yourself. Protect means stabilize yourself in that. By that renunciation. What renunciation? Realizing everything is God. This is what he's talked about here. So there is a preliminary renunciation of the sannyasi, of the monk, who gives up certain activities, certain relationships, um, possessions, and becomes a, um, a solitary seeker after God. So that's a monk, externally or internally. That's a preliminary thing. And it's, ne it's good, it's necessary. Um, being a formally a monk may not be neither necessary, not possible for everybody, but internally, one must have that, that seeking, that aspiration. The next one, silence. For silence, he gives three verses. He's not particularly silent on silence. <laughs> 107, 8, and 9. Beautiful verses. Yasmadvacho nivartante aprapya manasasaham nyanmaunam yogi virgamyam ब्रह्मवादिभि Last sentence. Ordinarily, silence is understood as the practice of silence. I shall not speak. Specific time. Maybe half a day or one day. Mahatma Gandhi used to have one day of silence. Yogis observe a day of silence or three days of silence when you don't speak. I knew a monk who did not speak. Not um, three days. He, I think he didn't speak for five years or something. Suddenly he decided... Um, so that is silence and it is, uh, it is a very good practice a lot of energy is spent a lot of energy is spent in talking believe me I know <laughs> I could see it I, I, I saw that the, I had a retreat in Ganges this is relaxed compared to that I gave seven talks each one and a half hours within uh, 48 hours. Seven talks. So, a lot of energy is spent in... in uh, I read somewhere that... Uh, or somebody told me, those who are performers, like singers, or even actors in plays, they give a voice rest, that they, the people are not allowed to talk to them before the performance or something, like they don't. They rest their voices. It's not just a voice. A lot of psychic energy is wasted in talking. Those who talk a lot, they can't think deeply. There was a very interesting uh, professor in um, our Institute of Culture in Gold Park. He's a professor of philosophy, retired professor. And he was interesting. I I've met him. Very profound. But the thing is, he wouldn't give lectures, he wouldn't write articles, publish books. Um, so one, one, my, one of my friends, a monk, who was in that ashram, that's a place for intellectuals. You know, there are classes and the research studies and all of that. So he went and he was close to this professor. 
So he went to this professor and he said, um, sir, when you and I ask you questions, you explain things so well. So why don't you give talks or why don't you write, you know, papers or books? And the professor said, so he had a very dramatic way of speaking, you know, he would lean close and you say, you see, Swami, those who talk a lot, they can't write. Those who write a lot, they don't think. I think. <laughs> I think very deeply. But there were people who were against him. I heard, I heard, all heard it from my friend, that Swami. And he said, there are people who complained to the head Swami. That Swami, Lokeshwaranji, was the head of that institute. He was a very great Swami. He was, a, he was not the founder, but he was like the founder. Like him. He was so great there. He, he was, um, so some people complained against this professor. He's not publishing anything. He's useless. Why are you keeping him on? Why are you retaining him? He's not giving talks. He's not publishing. And you know what Lokeshwaranji's answer was? He, would, he was a man of few words and a very sweet smile. He gave his typical sweet smile. People have never seen him get angry, literally, in 60 years, in difficult circumstances. He gave a sweet smile and he replied, a few such people should always be around. In Bengali, it's funnier. He said, <laughs> a few such people, it's good to have such people around. He understands the inner quality of that person. Don't measure everything by metrics. Publish or perish. <laughs> Why did I say this? Maunam, silence. Yes, silence. How I met this professor, again, not related, but interesting. It just shows this professor. There was a very great professor of Indian philosophy, K.C. Bhattacharya. Not many people know about him. He's not popular like Radhakrishnan and others. He's not popular, not well known. He wrote very little. But whatever little he wrote, I read a little bit of it and I found it so extraordinarily profound. He was a professor of, of German philosophy, Kant, and, and of Vedanta. So it was extraordinarily profound. I've never seen... Uh, and they were just... What is remaining are just scraps, you know? He used to write something and then he would roll up the piece of paper and throw it away. And most of these were swept away by his wife and put into the... <laughs> his young son, he rescued some of that. And that's the studies in philosophy, two volumes. That's why when you see the book, you will see it's not continuous. It's one, two, three, four, just the scraps which he got. And those scraps are so profound. So I asked this professor, whom I'm talking about, Sir, have you heard of Professor K.C. Bhattacharya? I read one of his books, I mean, the scraps collected from his books, uh, from his writings. And it is so profound, but nobody speaks about him, who I was asking. I was a young monk asking this professor, this strange professor, who wouldn't give talks or write books. I asked him, have you heard of him? What do you think of him? He said, Swami, just as there are musicians for musicians, ordinary people will not understand them. You have to be a musician to appreciate that person. There are musicians for musicians. There are philosophers, philosophers. He was a philosopher for philosophers. Ordinary people would not understand him. And he narrated a story which he has heard from his teachers because he never saw Kesi Bhattacharya. Uh, he saw Kesi Bhattacharya's son, the one who rescued those scraps. He said that after college, the philosophy professors from the different colleges in and around Calcutta would assemble at Kesi Bhattacharya's house 
and he would sit on his bed under the mosquito curtain. The one, one thing he was afraid of in the universe were mosquitoes. <laughs> so he would sit under the mosquito curtain and he would whisper out whatever he wanted to say and all the other professors, they would lean forward just to catch scraps of wisdom from him, whatever he would say. This, this is the kind of person. Monam, silence. A lot of energy is wasted in speaking. So, silence. But, here he says, Gira monam tu balanam prayuktam brahmavadivi. The knowers of Brahman say this kind of silence, silence of speech, is for children. Balanam for children, for foolish children. He says, you know what it is like? Too much talking, the extroverted, unable to think, when the kids are running around and not listening to you, the teacher comes and says, hey, sit quiet, listen. And they sit quiet for a minute. That's the kind of silence, monam. That's the yogic silence. You, mind is running around and chattering away to stop. Quiet. Don't speak. Hush. So, okay, hush. The mind settles down. Then you can use it for meditation, prayer, let alone Vedanta. Vedanta requires quietness. That's why yogic meditation is very useful for Vedanta. It's a good preparation. But here he says it's for children. You see, what happens with this silence, the physical silence has its limits. And if you overdo it, it has adverse effects also. See, uh, suppression. The mind is chattering away. I will not express it. This monk I knew who was under a vow of silence for years. One day I was his roommate in one of our ashrams. So that's the first time I met him. What a strange person, doesn't say anything. We will communicate with sign language. And, and the other monks would tease him, you know, like they would say something irritating to him. Oh, this Swami, he doesn't talk to us monks, but he goes and talks to devotees, which he doesn't. It's an unfair thing to say. But he'll say that and then start eating, you know, in the breakfast time. This monk is going to give a very animated response with sign language. No, no, that's wrong. But he's not looking. He's just eating now. No. <laughs> that would drive him wild, you know. Is say something and then don't look. <laughs> anyway, so he was my, ro my roommate. Um, and at night, he went to sleep. I turned off the lights. And all night long he spoke. <laughs> in his sleep. He was, he was chattering away. And then in the next morning when I woke up and I said, Swami, you're speaking in your sleep. You're talking in your sleep. And you know what his response was? <laughs> Who, me? No. <laughs> Denies it. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of uh, suppression, repression. It's repression, repression, repression. When you, when you repress something so much for months and years, and then it becomes like that. Anyhow, finally I heard that. And there was another Swami, I remember. Um, so they are there, I'm not telling their names. And they're very good Swamis. This person, he was, uh, he was an, under a vow of silence when I met him. For years and years. I think for more than a decade. Very nice Swami. But what happened was, when finally he broke his vow of silence. Ten years or twelve years afterwards. He started speaking. He went on a tour of India. To the different ashrams. And giving everybody a piece of his mind. <laughs> he literally became a terror. What do you know? They would say, oh, 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 holy terror. 
because if he's coming to your ashram you you better stay out of his way because if he catches you you're in for it like it'll be hours and hours before he lets you go and is he saying something very edifying no just general talk you know his opinions on this and that which has been bottling up for decade for a decade and i'm sure it has an effect <laughs> but this is this is the downside of it uh, i'm just make i'm bringing out the humorous part of it but yes it's a difficult practice to follow for years together unless you try it you, you don't see how difficult it is um but then what is shankaracharya saying then what is silence he says what is silence brahman is silence that witness consciousness inside you the, it is it is silent why because speech cannot express it neither avang manasagochara words cannot express it thoughts cannot reach it sri ramakrishna used to say there is one th- and this simply cannot be translated into english he said aktai jinish etho haini brahma uchchhishta haini you know in india we have this system that if you touch something with your lips or something it is um soiled i mean in the sense that i can eat it but no i nobody else i can't offer it to anybody else that would be insulting uh, but i take it of course somebody who's very affectionate somebody close so for example we offer it to god and that's offered food so that we take but for a human being we wouldn't do that so normally we don't do that except maybe guru we do that for guru yeah yes this maunam is prapancha upashama of, of mandukya karika correct of mandukya upanishad so brahman is beyond concepts beyond words that is real silence he says you cannot express brahman by words because it is beyond words and then he says about the world you want to speak about the world whatever you say about the world will be a lie because world itself is inexplicable it's very interesting that um, i just may point it out i read in rebecca goldstein's work on godel's theorem on on godel she in the introduction she says it is amazing to think that the three greatest discoveries of 20th century science are einstein's theory of relativity heisenberg's uncertainty principle and godel's incompleteness theorem when i when i read that one after another it didn't strike me before that look at these three words relativity incompleteness uncertainty these are the very words which which describe maya at its deepest understanding of of the universe which we have now of of the universe it is exactly what what vedanta says maya is an inexplicable appearance anything that you say about this world is true only at a certain level finally absolutely speaking you cannot express the absolute truth about this universe also yeah so what will you say this is this is real silence knowing that brahman out of the question it's beyond language and universe also it is ultimately inexplicable that leads to silence and he says the silence of the tongue is for children he says there's one more thing i wanted to say <laughs> shantam shivam 
Shantam means the peaceful, the silent. Brahman is the silent. Oh, there was a monk in the Himalayas. <laughs> when you realize that you are Brahman, so you are that perpetual silence. So there was this monk who called himself Sahaj Mauni. Sahaj Mauni means the naturally silent monk. And he spoke so much. <laughs> naturally silent means he says, I am Brahman. So in that sense, silence. And so that gave him license to keep on speaking. <laughs> then, so this is real silence. Yes. Please do, yes. Huh. Cleanliness. What is Vedanta stands about dealing with mental impurity? Because it's at the level of chitta. Yes. Are we supposed to look at it as another vritti and go beyond it? True. Mental impurity, how does Vedanta deal with it? Whether it is a pure thought or an impure thought, both are shining in me, the one awareness. Now, how does that deal with impure thoughts? Can, will that not give license to cultivating impure thoughts? And if you cultivate impure thoughts, at one time it will be expressed in speech and action. It's a force which is generated in the mind and then ultimately gets expressed. So how do you deal with impure thoughts? See, what, why do we have impure thoughts of greed and lust and anger and prejudice and hatred? Why? It's because of our limited idea about who we are and what others are. I want this. This will give me fulfillment. And I'm willing to go beyond the limits of decency and law and morality and get it. That is evil. That is bad. But if I know I am the infinite, I know means not theoretically, I actually feel the completeness. There is nothing at all that the world can offer me which, which, I, which I need. Why should I break the law? Why should I do immoral things? I know I am one with all of you. Um, one, one monk would start his talks, I've seen in the Himalayas, he would start his talks uh, with Mere Atma Swarup, Oh my own self, to all of you. My own self, how can I hurt? How can I hate? How can I discriminate? Whom to praise, whom to blame, when praiser and praise, praised and blamer and blamed are but one. So this is how Vedanta deals with it. If the, if the understanding, if the conviction is genuine, the impurity at the level of thoughts will, it may keep on coming because of past conditioning, but it will diminish, it will lose, uh, it will lose vitality. Yes, any kind of thought. In fact, what Drigdisha Vivekat says, any thought that comes up, what do you do? You use it to turn back to the witness consciousness because it is shining in the light of witness consciousness. See, all these items are shining in the, this light. So instead of, the, in, instead of, you know, the common way of approaching it is, this is a bottle, this is a clock, this is a pen. And they are all on a table. But if I focus on the light, here is light bottle reflecting light. Clock reflecting light. Pen reflecting light. The table reflecting light. Everything reminds me of the light. Exactly in the same way, every thought should point back to you, the witness consciousness. Just as the annoying cry of the baby or that clickety-clack of the fan, it should point back to the witness consciousness because of which you are able to hear it. Right? 
and in drigdrishya viveka it says kamadhyaschittagad drishyaha tat sakshitvena chetanam how do you meditate take up the drishya the the objects which you see in the mind what objects he says kama desire anger peace disturbance anything that comes in the mind nothing comes in the mind mind is very tricky think a thought swami nothing comes to mind mind is always full of thoughts the moment you ask the mind to think of something blank take up the blank that blank is also appearing to you because you are awareness anything will remind you of that awareness so then what happens is um, thoughts which you might consider to be disturbing negative immoral they will slowly lose lose vitality they will drain away i think that's a one more verse let me do and then stop next is deshaha a solitary place is necessary for meditation so the yogis recommend there are a lot of discussions what place you should meditate in so a place which should be solitary but it should not be it should be something like this you know peaceful it should not be next to say it should not be very windy it should not be a place with full of insects You know, or tigers and lions you know, you know what you would encounter in a jungle in the himalayas or in in india so safe but not populated too much like that that is the usual definition of place but what does he say by now you know what will he say he'll say it's brahman <laughs> yes adavante cha madhye cha jano yasmin vidyate ूड what do you mean universe does not exist in the beginning middle or end think about it this table does it exist it does not exist apart from the wood and if you consider the wood before it before when it was a log of wood it was wood one day this will be smashed and sold off for firewood it will be wood even now it is wood right vedanta would say at no time does an entity called a table exist when it was a log of wood it was not a table when it will be sold for scrap one day in the uh, distant future hopefully it's a nice table when the uh, distant future it is sold for scrap firewood it will not be a table right now also it's not a table that's the remarkable thing that vedanta says because what is it really what are you touching what you say touch wood you don't say touch table huh? and when you weigh it it's the weight of the wood no it's the weight of the table wood and table so the table should weigh a little more than the wood no it doesn't there is no thing called a table apart from the wood then vedanta will say the table did not exist in the beginning middle or end what existed was wood wood and wood in between the name and form and use of a table appeared yeah now he says the universe does not exist in brahman beginning middle or end right now also when it is appearing before creation of the universe it didn't exist after its final dissolution it will not exist even now when it is appearing it doesn't exist what exists is brahman alone that is true solitude god alone 
who defined spirituality? I think Saint John or somebody very beautiful. The flight of the alone to the alone. Very beautiful. Alone, small a, to the alone, capital A. Who is the alone, capital A? God, in, in the case of the mystic, here Brahman, and you. You're alone, but not lonely. <laughs> You're alone, but not lonely. You are full. You are the infinite. Okay, let me end on a... 5.30, huh? Let me end on a silly note. Not even humorous. <laughs> I can't... Uh, not, can I, I cannot not tell these jokes when they occur to me. The solitude reminded me. When in Deoghar Ramakrishna Mission, the school where I joined as a young monk, children used to study there. Uh, they still do. And there were other teachers. There were monks and teachers also. They were paid teachers, that is, employees. So um, one of the teachers, a very nice, a very devoted man, Bengali teacher, teacher of Bengali, but he was very confident. So, you know, when... There's a class, when you don't have a teacher, you have a substitute teacher. I don't know what you call it. A substitute teacher, yes. So he would volunteer for all substitute classes. You know, and he would say, I will teach that. Whatever is being taught. It could be computers, physics, Sanskrit, whatever. Not his subject. He said, I'll teach it. So one day he was a substitute teacher for the English teacher. And he went upstairs to teach. And we were all sitting in the teacher's common room. And suddenly he came down, flustered. Chalk dust flying around like a little cloud around him and came. And he rushed to the, the, the book cabinet and he opened the dictionary, looked up something and rushed away. We were all flustered. Well, what happened? What, what's going on? Later on, after the class was over, he came down and we asked him, what happened? He said, don't ask me. I got into so much trouble. I went to teach the class seven. The boys there, they were learning English poetry. The Solitary Reaper, William Wordsworth. And then the word came up, solitude. One of the boys asked, sir... What does solitude mean? And he said, I've heard of latitude and I've heard of <laughs> attitude and altitude, but I've never heard of solitude. What is this solitude? I, I told him, good question, keep standing. And then he ran downstairs to look at the dictionary. <laughs> so that is solitude. <laughs> Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu